here. I thought to myself, how should we kick off the new year? Something light, perhaps. How about Job? For those of you who don't know the story of Job, very briefly, Job is a man who was considered a righteous man, a wealthy man, a man who who worshipped well, and um, tragedy strikes. He loses everything. He's in physical, emotional, spiritual pain and is calling out with many questions. His friends come to him with many answers, none of which are correct. Don't be throwing out, this is what Eliphaz said. Don't do that to people. Doesn't help. (laughs) Until ultimately he has a conversation with God, what he's been calling out for the whole time. So we're going to walk through this over the next five weeks. 42 chapters in Job, and we're going we're gonna to pull it off. <laughs> what was I? I got that? Thanks, man. He said, you got this. Thanks, buddy. Um, but I'm going to invite you to stand right now as we start up, and we are going to read Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and then 13 to 22. There's a section in the middle where something goes on in the heavenly council, Job doesn't know about that, and he never does know about that. So we're going to skip that part this week and just see how Job sees this playing out in his life. Word of God to us this morning. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. End of verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the, old, at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the, with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians, this is uh, southern Arabia, Uh, people of Southern Arabia, raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders Uh, have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. (sighs) While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. It's a bad day. Yeah? Bad day. Job stood up, tore his robe in grief, and he shaved his head and he fell to the ground to worship. 
He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. God, I pray as we read through this, possibly the most ancient of Hebrew texts, that you would open our hearts that you would maybe do uh, some corrections if we need that in, in the way that we look at this book. But ultimately, we want to, to open up to see what the book of Job tells us about who you are, about how we ought to approach you when things are not turning out the way we thought they would, are not working the way we think they should. And so we, we come this morning with with. Only the expectation that you would do a work in us. Everything else we bring, we put it aside and say, Holy Spirit, counsel us and work in us, we pray. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Last month, and, and some of you will be aware of this, um, especially if you follow the uh, follow Christian, Christian, different, the Christian community on Instagram or, or a, a lover of, of Christian worship music, last month, Marty Sampson, worship music writer who's been writing and co-writing songs for Hillsong, Hillsong United, back in the day with Delirious. He's been writing worship for, for two decades. He kind of shook up the, the Christian, the church culture uh, by making this post on Instagram. He said this, he said, this is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradiction? No, no contradictions. No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. No one talks about it. Oh, it's, it's there twice. We don't need it twice. Now, some have been quick to attack Marty Sampson, and if you post something like that on Instagram, <laughs> you've got to be open to people responding. Hopefully, the, the default response of the church and the Christian community would be prayer and compassion for him. But for anyone who's grown up in the church, read the writings of the church, know the history of the church, all of us know that these aren't new questions. And we should also recognize these are important questions. They're not questions to be ignored. They're important questions. But I, I would stand here this morning humbly submitting these are not questions the church has ignored. These are not questions Scripture ignores. If you look back at the history of the church, the very beginning, church fathers, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, they were all working with these kinds of questions, finding answers in, in, in how do we... How do we justify the God that we read in Scripture, the Jesus that we read about in Scripture, and, and all of these things that are going on. If you were to go onto Amazon today and look up Christian books, probably 40 to 50% of them are about faith and doubt. If you, if you look at authors like Ravi Zacharias or Timothy Keller, Gary Habermas, John Ortberg, Philip Yancey, they're, they're all struggling with these questions in a, in a, in a way that you and I can approach and read literally hundreds more books like that on Amazon 
for you and I to read talking about faith and doubt. I believe John Ortberg's book on faith and doubt is actually called Faith and Doubt, in case you're having a hard time looking for it. Not only has the church been upfront about these, these struggles, these questions, Scripture is upfront about these, these questions. The, the, the first recorded stories of Jesus, what are, what are called the Gospels, don't hide the, the fact that even Jesus' followers were full of doubt. Thomas was known for, I mean, what a nickname, Thomas the Doubter. I mean, that's, you don't get that on a shirt. You don't get that on a card. But he was, he was known for, for, for doubting that Jesus had been resurrected. After Jesus had been resurrected and had been seen by, by over 500 people, he's about to ascend into heaven. His followers are surrounding him. And Matthew 28, 17 records this. Is it up there? When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Now, why include that? In, in, the, in the stories of Jesus, of, 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 of accounts of those who walked and witnessed him, why include things like that? If the whole point of the Gospels is to convince people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus was resurrected, why include aspects of people who were close to him but didn't believe it? Because that is part and parcel of what it means to believe in an almighty God, a loving God, a just God, but live in his creation. That's what you and I daily walk with. Much of the writings of the apostle Paul, some of, some of you might know him as St. Paul. They were, they were written to, to churches who were dealing with, with pain and struggle and, and waiting for all these wonderful things that have been promised to happen. Listen, words like faith and, and hope and trust and patience, the, these are all words that imply we don't have all the answers yet, aren't they? Isn't hope for something that we don't have yet? Faith is there's got to be something else going on here. Trust means it's not exactly as we want it, but we're going to look to you. Patience, it's not the way we want it yet. These are all words that, that get thrown around in the New Testament because the New Testament writers know, God knows, Jesus knows that it's, it's, not, it's not how it ought to be yet. And so we are going to have to struggle with these kinds of questions. Before Christ, before the cross, in the, in the collection of, of Hebrew scripture, doubt was a continued theme. The Psalms are riddled with doubt, riddled with questions of a God who is enthroned above but is allowing horrible things to happen. How can you allow this to happen? Why should we live lives that strive for righteousness? Why should we worship you when those who don't seem fine and those who do don't necessarily receive blessing? That's the struggle of the psalmist in Psalm 73. He's, he's trying to live for Yahweh, trying to live for God, but it, he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to be getting the things that he thinks he should be getting out of it. And he looks at those who are not living for God, and it doesn't make Sense him. This is not the way the, the world ought to be ordered. In Psalm 73, verse 12, it says, Look at these wicked people. They're enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. In, in other words, God, I, I thought I had this figured out. Why, why should I devote myself to you if I'm not going to get anything out of it? The main question of, of Job is, is why should we worship and serve and live 
for God. What, ultimately, why would we? Because the motivations we have for worshiping God will have a direct effect on how we respond to a life of struggle and doubt. How you and I approach God in worship, how you and I visualize God ruling over creation will drastically affect how you and I respond when we have trouble, when we watch the news, when people close to us are suffering, hurting. Now, what we're going to do today is uh, really we're just kind of, uh, Pastor David gave me this, this kind of illustration. We're, just t- we're setting the table today. We're putting everything in its place to walk through Joe. We're putting the plate where it needs to go. We're going to put the knife and fork where it needs to go, the cup where it needs to go, so that we can properly digest Job throughout this next month and a bit. So we're not diving right into it. We're kind of giving a, some background on it, about how we ought to read Job. When, when we attempting to take on a book like Job, there are a handful of things that, that need to be dealt with in order to sweep away maybe any misconceptions we might have. That have and maybe give us a clearer understanding of what exactly is being dealt with in the book of Job. So we know that when what is being said to its original readers and what's not being said to its original readers. Therefore, what is being said to you and I about who God is and about walking through suffering and what is not being said to you and I and who God is when we walk through suffering. So as we travel through these, these different themes of Job over the next month or so, I just want to, some things to keep in mind while we are reading Job. Some things to keep in mind as we read Job. The first is this, Job is meant to be read as a whole. Oh, man. And I've tried to push this. The scripture, we are so used to divvying up scripture into our chapters and our verses and our devotionals, right? The, the book of Job, like, you know what? Almost every book in scripture is meant to be read as a whole. Believe me, when the church in Ephesus received the letter to Ephesus, what we call Ephesians, the the pastor of the church did not read three verses and go, that's good. We'll get back to it next week. No, they would have read the entire thing to get the entire uh, argument of Paul in the book of Ephesians and all of his letters to the church. In the same way, many of the things that we read in scripture, the books are meant to be read as a whole. It's not meant for coffee mugs and desktop wallpaper or t-shirts, quick phrases to throw at somebody when they are suffering. It's 42 chapters that are meant to be consumed in order to get the argument that the author is giving us. There should never be a, what would Eliphaz do bracelet? That stuff should not exist, okay? It's meant to be taken as a whole. We cannot take bites. We cannot nibble at it. The entire book must be taken. So carve yourself out some time this week. Carve yourself out an hour and a half, two hours. Grab uh, an audio version if you need to. Many of the apps that you can get for your phone also can read the Bible to you. So on your way to work, when you're going to bed, whatever it is, carve out some time to read through. I don't care what version you read. If it's the message or New Living Translation, ESV, whatever makes it, easier for you to to consume. Let's do that this week. The second thing when we read Job is we need to read with an eye on the original context and culture. This is one we're not good at. When we, for instance, when we read the Psalms and we think about 
green pastures. We think of what we think of green pastures. If you've been to Israel, you know that's not the kind of green pastures that they get there very often. When we think of, when we talk about the, the wings of the eagle, we think about a, a bald eagle. There are bald eagles in Israel. We, we're probably think, and talking about animals and, and we're thinking about moose and beaver. No, okay? <laughs> we, we need to have an understanding of, of the context and, and the worldview in order to have a better understanding of what is being argued and what is being talked about in the book of Job. It is written uh, for and to a people and by a people in the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East, the, the ancient world surrounding Israel. In case you didn't know what the ancient Near East was. So modern day Syria, Turkey, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, Iran, Egypt, all those areas that we, that we hear about, that, that it's being written to that kind of culture and beliefs that they had about the gods. It written almost 35, around 3,500 years ago in a very ancient form of Hebrew. Is it possible that we may have to do a little bit of work to unpack what's being said and what's going on? Guys, it was written for a people who saw their relationship with the gods very differently. Their, their understanding of heaven and the world and, and, and a council of gods very differently than you and I picture the world working and the divine going on. They lived life by something that one scholar has, has labeled the retribution principle. The righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. The righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. If you do the right things, you're going to be blessed. If you do the wrong things, you're going to be cursed. Notice, notice what Job does in verse 14 of what we read today. That This tells you something about the view that Job has of the God that he worships. Do we have that verse 4 there? There we go. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with him. When these celebrations were ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. They might have done something wrong. And maybe they have offended God. They didn't even mean to, but maybe they offended God. I got to take care of that. He'd get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. Imagine the kind of life that Job has. My kids have been out having fun. I got to get up early and appease the God that I worship. I mean, thankfully, we live in a time where we don't think of God this way. Thankfully, we have advanced enough in our understanding of, of Yahweh, of Jesus, that we wouldn't think that anytime we make a mistake, we're going to get cursed, and anytime we do something right, we're going to get a badge. I'm glad we don't live our faith up that way anymore. It was written to a people who saw the gods as needy and reliant on humanity. If you think of the jealousy and the backbiting and stuff of the Romans and the Greek gods, very similar stuff is going on in, in the understanding of, of Job's audience. There was this symbiosis between the gods and humanity. You guys remember that word, symbiosis? Remember? Here's a, here's a picture to help you remember. What are those fish called? Do you remember? Pilot fish? No, oh, they're called remoras. Okay. Maybe that's true too. The understanding here is that these fish attach themselves to a shark, the toughest guy in the ocean, right? And they, they feed off the scraps and the parasites on the shark, and they're protected from all other prey. Predators, excuse me. They're protected from all other predators 
as they make their way through the oceans. It's a symbiotic relationship. Both are benefiting from it. In the ancient Near East, they saw the relationship with the gods like this. Old Testament scholar John Walton says, calls it the great symbiosis. The great symbiosis. And it says the, great, the, the gods had created people to serve their needs. In response, the gods protected the faithful people and provided for them, gave them fertile fields, health, rain, etc., a healthy family. It's interesting as part of that is that humanity in the ancient Near East was an afterthought to the gods. Rather than the height of creation, it was, you know, it would be great if someone could feed us. It would be great if someone could build us some, some homes and, and keep those homes clean and service. I mean, that's why we had kids. But, <laughs> but in the ancient Near East, that's why the gods created humanity. So in the ancient Near East, we, had this, we, we have multiple gods. Gods who were confusing and moody and would change their minds. Gods that, that uh, could, could be appeased if you did the right thing or made very angry if you did the wrong thing. They were needy. There was nothing commendable about them. No one was looking at the gods and going, they are just, because they, they would always change. They were killers. They were jealous, conniving. They're, imagine the predicament of the people of the ancient Near East trying to worship these gods, trying to appease these gods, trying to do the right thing when the right thing can change depending on on who the god is and whether he or she is having a good day. And it's evident in a lot of the writing from that time. In in a poem that was written about 1400 BC by a guy named, well, you probably know some of its hits. You'll recognize the name. His name is Shubshi Meshri Shakan. <laughs> in, in what's been called the, the poem of the righteous sufferer, he says this. He says, I wish I knew that these things were pleasing to one's gods. What is proper to oneself is an offense to one's gods. What is one's own heart seems despicable is proper to one's gods. Who knows the will of the gods in heaven? Who understands the plans of the underworld gods? Where have mortals learnt the way of a God. Doesn't it make sense that David would say, I love your laws? When you read Psalm 119 and there's just this falling in love with the fact that, that God said, this is who I am and this is what I require, rather than a burden, a blessing to say, oh, this is who you are. How different. This is the world that, that, that the book of Job is being introduced into. That's the context, the culture. So we need to read Job as a whole. We need to read it in its culture and its context. And we also need to read it as a, this is important. We need to read it as a revelation about what is true of God, not facts about a guy named Job. We need to read it as a revelation about what is true of God, not facts about a guy named Job. And also not to take in all the arguments of his friends as great stuff to throw out to your suffering neighbor. Most scholars would say that the book of Job is probably does not represent real-life events. Now, I grew up as a staunch conservative Baptist. If I said that when I was a kid, I would, I would still have bruises right here. Depending on how you grew up, that statement might make you a little shaky. But most scholars would say, looking at the, the, at the book itself, it does not appear to be a, 
a, an actual factual story, but a story that's trying to teach us something about God. It's, it's written as a poem. It's this interaction that goes on between Job and his friends, that all of his friends' arguments are, are poetry. I'm not sure the last time you went to the hospital or tried to help someone who was suffering, but I doubt you went and you, you just came out with all these beautiful poems. I'd be impressed. The scene in heaven that, that, that we, we skipped today, but we're going to dive into next week of, of, of the devil and God and this, this council, it's, it's very much a, a remake of, of, of how people in the ancient Near East saw the, the heavenly realms, a kind of king's court. The description of Job is ideal. He, he wasn't just rich. He was the richest. He wasn't just good. He was the best. It's all, it's all putting things in place to make this story even more powerful. The, the unfolding of events has, has literary purpose. We see this, as, and I, I kind of gave it a physicality as I was reading it, between verses 15 and 16, 16 and 17, 17 and 18. They all have this, this repetition. I'm the only one who survived. While that person was still speaking, someone else came in. Right? It's like a Greek tragedy. I am the only one who escaped. While he was still speaking, the next person came in. All of this is an effort to, to push us towards the important question, strip everything else away and ask, what kind of God do we worship and why do we worship him? That's where it's pushing us towards. And, and this is important for us. It's important to realize that the book of Job does not have to be historical fact to have very, very important truths to teach us. Very important. Think of parables. Think of the good Samaritan, the unforgiving servant, the prodigal son, all with significant truth teaching us about God regardless of the fact that they were stories. Also, it, it gives one comfort, doesn't it? When we throw up the idea that God didn't just have a gamble with the devil and then just pick on Job. Isn't it? Doesn't that give anyone else give you a little bit of comfort? Gives me a little bit of comfort. We'll dive a bit more into that aspect next week. Now, now all of the above have some, something to say about how we ought to read the book. The people of the ancient Near East had certain expectations of the gods that the book of Job challenges. All of these things that I'm telling you, the book of Job is going to challenge them with the understanding of this God who reveals himself, who is not changing his minds all the time, who, is, who has solidity in his reign. But if you and I, if, if the church sets up false expectations, false expectations of what a life of faith ought to look like, false expectations of who God is, of how the world should work, we will be disappointed. We will be disillusioned. We will, we will make our, our Instagram post wondering why none of our questions are being answered why we can't ask those questions maybe, or we feel like we can't. So the book of Job wants to, wants to calibrate our expectations so that we can face doubt and suffering with confidence and trust in God. Because our God is not like these gods. Even though we often treat him sometimes like the gods of the ancient Near East and live and believe as though he is like that. I'm, uh, I'm not a fan of Playland. 
what? Sorry. <laughs> Somewhere around 18 or 19, my center of gravity changed so that I don't like to be whipped around at 300 miles an hour. I get that. There are rides I like at Playland. I like the Ferris wheel. Da, 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 da. Except that it takes like three hours to get on a Ferris wheel. Everything changes. And, I, and I, I like the roller coaster. I love the roller coaster. But if you think you're getting on a Ferris wheel and you get on a roller coaster, you're going to be freaked out. If you think you're getting on, you're going to end up looking like that. There's a way you approach a ride on a Ferris wheel, and there's a way you prepare a ride on a roller coaster. Now, if you get on a roller coaster, and you're unsure of who built it, and you know the person who built it, they changed their mind a lot as they were creating it and drawing it. There's a, you've seen the plans, and there's like eraser marks, and they doodled over here, and you tell they had a bad day here, and you're going to be pretty scared while you ride that roller coaster. And as you hit bumps and turn corners quickly, you're going to wonder, how did he do on this corner? Did he think about this corner? You're going to wonder about how well it's, it's fastened to the ground. And those, knowing whether it was a, a, someone who was a confident builder or someone who was a little unsure is going to drastically affect your ride. You're going to be scared the entire time. That's what the story of Job is about. That's what the story of Job is about. Life is, is, is not a Ferris wheel. If we think it is, we will be confused, we'll be, we'll be scared, we'll be tempted to get off. Say, it's not for me. Life moves up and down, it moves side to side, it puts our stomach in our mouth sometimes. But in God, we know we're going to reach our destination. We know it's going to get to the end. See, our modern gods are quite a bit like the gods of the ancient Near East. A lot of the way that Job and his friends viewed God, they're based on short-lived pleasure and, and, and what I can get out of it, short-lived successes, Today, the gods of solidarity and, and, and the sacred self, all of which shift and turn and change their mind, and if you're on the wrong side of it, they're going to turn on you. You can't find solidity. See, but Job introduced the ancient world to a God who answers questions of trust in the middle of confusion and chaos. How do we, how do we hope in the middle of what seems like a, a journey teetering on edges and speeding up and slowing down? And what we're going to see in Job, as we do that, we, by, by widening the framework on which we live our lives, by, by widening our understanding of, of how our life in God is bolted firmly to the ground. So that we can get to the point where, where the words of Christ can take deep root in our hearts. When Jesus says in, in John 16, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. If you want a, a picture of the world so that you're not confused, he make, Jesus made it pretty straight, didn't he? Not, not if. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome 
the world. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I hold, I created all things by my word and I sustain and I hold all things together by my word. I am in control. That is the God we worship and serve. That's the God we're going to explore more as we go through the book of Job. We can discover that over the next five weeks. So stay with us. Your homework is to read Job. But right now, let's pray to the God who listens and sustains. God of grace. We live in such a shifting climate, politically, economically, relationally, that we can find it very difficult to find our bearings, to to calibrate our hearts. And so it's my prayer this morning and throughout this series that, Jesus, we would fix our eyes firmly on you. The perfecter of our faith. That you would give us solid ground, the, the solid ground that the psalmist cried out for, that you would give us solid ground to stand on. So that then when when the waters rise and the mountains seem like they're crumbling, we realize you firmly have us in your grip. We thank you. We thank you that, that you are a God who has revealed himself to us and that all prayer and all worship is a response to you, not a yelling out for you to reveal yourself. Do a work in us this week. Give us clarity for our lives to understand the depth and the solidity of our faith. And may that have great impact on what it means to be a Christian in this world. To be in this world, but not of this world. To have our desires fixed on you. And in doing so, find our fullest hope, our fullest identity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, one of the ways that Jesus gave us to, to get our bearings straight in a world that seems shifty and where, as we proclaim the gospel, many other good newses are, are coming towards us, many other pursuits are being dangled in front of us, telling us to, to move away. One of the ways we get our bearings, we stand firmly, is by placing ourselves right in the middle of the beautiful story God is telling through Jesus Christ by taking communion together. When we take communion, we, we remember, we, we proclaim through communion that Christ died. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he was, he was eating with his friends, and he took bread and he said, whenever you eat together in the future, I want you to remember when you eat that, that this bread represents my body that was given for you. Nobody took it. Jesus was very clear. He gave himself up. He said, whenever you take from the cup, I want you to remember that my blood was spilt as a payment for the sins of the world. And so as we, as we take communion together, if you're a Christ follower, we're, we're proclaiming that our, our salvation, our forgiveness, our identity is all caught up in, in the cross and resurrection event. But also, when we take communion, we look ahead because Jesus said, one day I'm going to eat that with you. So we, we eat with hope. But also, as we eat together, we eat as the body of Christ. We eat the body of Christ in communion. And we remember that 
Christ is not a prize to be won sometime, somewhere, that he wishes to abide with us now. So as we take communion, we're reminded that he wants to abide with us, and we are in Christ. We are one with Christ. It's where our identity is found. Oh, please, let's dive deeper into that. Let's dive deeper into finding our identity in Christ. If not, we will be swept into anything else that makes us feel good for a while. So I'm going to pray in a moment. And how we do communion here, if you're a Christ follower, you're welcome. If you come to the point where you, call, you would say Jesus has forgiven your sins and you're, the trajectory of your life is, is aimed and directed towards him, then you're welcome to take communion. If you're not a Christ follower, then this would just be snacks to you. I would just ask you that as, as other people are coming up to take communion, you would reflect on the words maybe that I've said or that the worship band is going to be singing. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you after the service. It would be my, my great joy to, 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 to tell you about Jesus and introduce you to him. And, and then it would be our, our great joy as a church, as your family, to do communion together with you uh, in a few weeks when we do it again. But how we do it here is uh, we'll have two stations. We'll have gluten-free bread over here to your left. We'll have regular bread, but everyone's welcome to take from both sides. And how we do it is we come down both of these aisles, and then after you've taken communion, you can take a right here and go up behind the curtains. There's a stairwell, and over there, there's a stairwell as well just to keep things flowing, all right? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that life doesn't have to be a pursuit of, of one desire after another desire after another desire. But in you, we can stop running. In you, we can get off the treadmill. In you, we can stop fighting to win because everything we desire to win has already been won. That in you, we can, we can stop saying do, we've got to do, we've got to do, because at the cross, it was finished, you said. And so we, we celebrate that and we find our identity in that as we take communion together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus, we thank you that we can celebrate this moment all because you stepped out of heaven and took on flesh and in great love absorbed our sin in your body. May we not take this sacrament, this sacred moment, lightly. May we not take this sacred moment without reflection. You are a good God. We worship you and we thank you as we take communion together now.